All right, so in 1 Samuel, chapters 7 through 8, um, life gets busy. This, this week was, was very busy for, for me and I'm sure for a lot of you as well, um, trying to move uh, from one place to another and also getting ready for uh, this week. And uh, this week's going to be busy as well. And so when life gets busy, it's important, it's important to have priorities and maintain proper priorities so that when we run out of time or, or resources, could be money, money is limited, uh, the most important objectives, the most important uh, tasks are accomplished. In 1 Samuel 7 through 8, we see the importance of setting and maintaining proper priorities that are, and we see that evidenced in three events in 1 Samuel 7 and 8. And so the first event we're going to look at in chapter 7 and in this first event, we see the importance of putting God first. Um, God is our greatest priority in life. And uh, Israel recognizes that in chapter 7. And there's a national revival under Samuel's leadership. So let's look at 7, and we'll see in verses 3 and 4, Israel's return to God. Verse 1, it's chapter 7 of 1 Samuel. And the men of kirjath Jerem came and fetched up the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab in the hill and sanctified Eliezer his son to keep the ark of the Lord. And it came to pass, while the ark abode in kirjath Jerem, the time was long, for it was twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And that's where we stopped last time, right there. And we, I talked about a little bit what lamented after the Lord means, and, and some, some translations even hint that it means that they're starting to turn back to God, they're starting to realize that they need to turn back to God, to mourn over their sin, to be sorry for it, to turn back to God. But it, it may also have the idea that they're looking at their current circumstances and realizing things aren't good, and they're calling out to God and, and, and letting their complaint, their requests, their concerns be made known to God. And then in the following verses of this chapter, we see that Samuel makes it clear to Israel, and Israel turns from their idols, that if they want God to bless them, if they want God to rescue them from their current circumstance, which was a 40-year uh, captivity, uh, 40 years of being under tribute and being under occupation of their enemies, the Philistines. Um, the Philistines, the same ones who had been the enemies back under Samson, the same ones who had killed thousands of the Israelites in just the previous chapters when the Ark of the Covenant was captured, the same enemy that uh, David will go up against uh, in defeating Goliath, and the same enemy that will um, bring about the death of Saul and Jonathan in future, future chapters in First Samuel. And so the Philistines. So look at verse 3. We see Israel returning to God, putting God as their first priority. Verse 3, And Samuel spake unto all the house of Israel, saying, If you do return unto the Lord with all your hearts, then put away strange gods and Ashtaroth from among you, and prepare your hearts unto the Lord, and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So notice some of these phrases and number three, if you will return to the Lord with all your heart, put away strange gods, 
Prepare your hearts unto the Lord. Serve Him only. And then at the end, He will deliver you. So notice those key phrases that um, today we, we wouldn't think about uh, setting up a statue and, and worship, worshiping it like was going on at this time. But sometimes other things might come in between us and God and become like an idol in our lives because it becomes, anything that becomes more important than God to us, whether it be money, whether it be a career, whether it be a, a person, a relationship, um, an object, a possession, an ambition, uh, any kind of desire or object in this life that comes between us and God and becomes more important to us than God and what God wants for us, that can become like an idol for us. And so notice, notice these phrases and think of it in terms of our lives. Return to the Lord. You know, each of us here, I believe, are, are here because uh, at some point in our life you came to God and you began to follow Him. And there's sometimes when we have to, uh, when we have to readjust in our lives and think, all right, um, when, when things are getting hectic or uh, out, of, out of order in our life and we need to reprioritize, if we need to spend more time in prayer or earlier in the day or in the God's word or just um, if the stress of life starts to get to us, we look, let's look at our priorities and make sure, you know, if we feel like we're not getting everything done, we need to get done, uh, take consolation in the fact that if we are putting God first and then family and then begin, other things can begin to fall into place as we set what is most important. And the things that we don't get to, we can at least take consolation in the fact that we put what was most important first. And at least we accomplished what was most important for the day, for the week, for the month, for the year. And there's many other things that maybe we want to do, want to accomplish with our day, with our month, with our, with our year. But if we have our priorities right, we can at least take comfort in that God is first and family, and we have God and family, and that's most important. Whatever else happens at work, with our health, we have God and we have our family. Um, and and uh, so the first priority we see here is, is that a priority of God. God is our greatest priority, and Israel has to recognize this. Israel has to turn back to God. And remember, in the New Testament it says, whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning. So this was put here in the Bible, this story, for us to learn from. And this is what I see here in uh, this verse 3. And then continuing verse 4. And then the children of Israel did put away Balaam and Ashtoreth. So there was two false gods, Balaam and Ashtoreth, that they were serving, that they were worshiping, they were sacrificing to, they were setting up high places and becoming like the culture around them and turning to those um, cultural gods in that region, Ashtaroth and Balaam. And now they serve the Lord only, so they're returning to God. Some of them may have been worshiping God in addition to the idols, but now they're putting away and serving only God. And sometimes we serve God, but yes, we get so tied up in other things that, that, that uh, our attention is pulled every which way. And perhaps that was way, way for some of the Israelites, that they weren't serving God only, they had other gods. And like, like I said, for us, that, that, that won't mean other literal gods, like in this case, 
statues or, 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 or pagan gods or pagan deities, false deities, but it could be anything else that seems to, to crowd into our life and keep us from putting God first, which will lead to frustration and defeat in our lives. Like it leads to defeat and frustration here for the Israelites as God does not bless and protect them the way he otherwise would have. Uh, and as he does, notice in the end of verse 3 it says, And serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines, their enemies. And he does. Verse 4, uh, So they do put away those false gods. In verse 5, Samuel said, Gather all Israel to Mizpah. So notice Samuel is going to lead and, and help lead this revival and lead this turning back to God, and lead in God being able to deliver Israel. Verse 5, And Samuel said, Gather all Israel to Mizpah, and I will pray for you unto the Lord. And I mentioned prayer this morning as being one of the things, as a steward, that we're entrusted with. One of the great weapons, the great tools that, in the Christian life that we have is prayer. And if we can't do anything else, we can always pray. And prayer is very powerful. As you see right here with Samuel, praying because God hears the prayer of the righteous and Samuel being being the righteous leader the righteous judge as we've seen him develop in earlier chapters here in first Samuel and, and being called by God to be this leader and be and being this uh, man of God he prays for the people in verse 5 uh, he says I will pray for you unto the Lord verse 6 and they gathered together to Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord, and fasted on that day, and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. So they're trying to make it right. They were wrong. They were sinning. They were doing something wrong. They did not have God as their top priority. And now they're making it right. And they're doing um, these actions of fasting and pouring out water to the Lord as a, as a picture, as a symbol, as a um, monument, as a as a sign that they're turning to God, they're returning to God. And Samuel judged, so notice again the leadership of Samuel in verse 6, and Samuel judged the children of Israel in Mizpah. And when the Philistines heard, so they're getting their house, uh, their affairs right, they're, they're setting their house in order, and now they're able to deal with the problems at hand, the Philistines, the enemy, in a way that they weren't able to do so in previous chapters because they weren't, they didn't have their top priority right, which is being right with God. And now they are, and so now they're prepared to meet that enemy and receive the protection and deliverance that God uh, promises to give them. And we have sinned against the Lord, and Samuel judged the children of Israel in Mizpah, verse 6 and verse 7. When the, Israel, when the Philistines heard that the children of Israel were gathered together in Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel, and when the children of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the children of Israel said to Samuel, Cease not to cry unto the Lord of our God for us, that he will save us out of the hand of the Philistines. Notice the difference we see here, right here in this passage, and just a couple passages back. Back in chapter, back in chapter 4, when they lost the ark, Remember when the Philistines gathered together against them, what did they do? Did they have Samuel or Eli? Eli was still alive at the time. Did they have him go to the Lord and pray for them? 
No, they said, okay, we've got a strategy, we, ha we have a solution, and that was, let's take the ark of God into battle, and that will give us the victory. And it didn't. It, it, it resulted in a great slaughter, and they lost the Ark of the Covenant to the Philistines. And then God revealed his power to the Philistines, as we saw last time. And then you, back when the Ark came back, some of the Israelites looked into it, and they um, were judged for that and died for that in the, back in uh, chapter 6. But now they have put God first. And rather than looking to their human wisdom, when they're confronted with this problem of the Philistines, the their enemy. They're confronted with that. Because they've put their priorities in order, they know to call on God first. Rather than confer amongst themselves and come up with a strategy, a plan, an idea that fails, they seek God. And God has the answer. God delivers them. So God answers the cries of those who seek him. He answers the cries here in this passage, and he answers our cries today. Let's look at verse 9. And Samuel took a sucking lamb and offered it for a burnt offering holy unto the Lord. And Samuel cried unto the Lord for the Israel, and the Lord heard him. And Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, and the Philistines drew near to the battle against Israel. But the Lord thundered with great thunder on that day upon the Philistines and discomfited them. And they were smitten before Israel. And the men of Israel went out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and smote them until they came unto Bethar. And Samuel stood on a stone and set it between Mizpah and Shen and called the name of, the name of Ebenezer, saying, Hitherto hath the Lord helped us. That word Ebenezer means a rock of help. And so God helped Israel. You see that in that battle, it's not just Israel winning a battle because they've had a good pep talk and they're confident and they have strength in numbers and determination. It's God sends this storm or sends this lightning and thunder. And the Philistines, um, they are not used to the Israelites being having all this um, going their way. They, they remember uh, back in chapter 4 when they heard the great noise of the camp of Israel uh, getting excited because they had the ark of God and they, they were afraid, but they strengthened themselves and, and went into that battle determined to win and the Philistines did win. Here we have things, the, the tables are turned. You know, the, the Philistines probably are not expecting um, Israel to be able to defeat them and uh, God helps by bringing the thunder and making the Philistines uncomfortable. And you know, back in hand-to-hand the hand co combat, determination is everything. I've even been told by my brother, who is a Marine, when it comes to hand-to-hand -to -hand combat, it's really who's more determined to live and kill the other person. And so God helps throw the balance off against the Philistines in this uh, mortal hand-to-hand -hand combat of, of armies. And a lot back then you know, would depend on if, some, if, if one army, the front line starts to retreat, the people behind them, there's not a lot they could do as they're, you know, they have their own people starting to fall back on them. And, and, and the tide of battle can turn, you know, even going back to the Civil War. You, know, you see, the tide of battle can turn so easily, and God helped turn it here for Israel in their favor, and they win a great, a great victory here in chapter 7. And then the men of Israel 
so we talked about the stone. Ebenezer uh, is that name. Of course, I always think of Ebenezer Scrooge when I hear that name. But now you know where that name comes from. It comes from right here in the Bible. It means uh, a rock or a stone of help. A stone of help. God helped. So that's that. Uh, helped Israel win this victory. That's where that name Ebenezer comes from. I think there's a hymn that talks about Ebenezer. And that's a reference to this. God helping. And verse 13. So the Philistines were subdued. And they came no more into the coast of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. And the cities which the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel, from Ekron even unto Gath. And the coast thereof did Israel deliver out of the hands of the Philistines. And there was peace between Israel and the Ammonites. Amorites, excuse me. And so after this 40 years of being in subjection to the Philistines, now the, the Israelites finally have peace. And they finally have this independence from being occupied by an invader and being ruled by this pagan group, the Philistines. Verse 15 through 17, we see Samuel's judging Israel as the last part of this event in chapter 7 where we see the importance of making God our first and top priority. Verse 15 through 17, And Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. And he went from year to year in circuit to Bethel and Gilgal Gilgal and Mizpah and judged Israel in all those places. And remember just last last Sunday morning I mentioned Bethlehem. Um, when When Samuel showed up there to anoint David king, the elders were afraid. Well, part of it is because, look, Samuel had a certain circuit that he went. And so if he's going out of the normal circuit, as we saw last week, something's wrong. Something's, going, something's not going as it normally does. So he had a circuit that he would travel and go to these cities. And anyone who want uh, I'm not sure that that's where the name circuit court comes from, but anyone who wants to go and have their case heard by Samuel can do that in one of these cities and travel throughout the land. Bethel, Gilgal, Mizpah. And he judged Israel in those places. And Notice he judges Israel his entire life. So during King Saul's reign, Samuel's going to continue his ministry, but uh, he won't be the political leader anymore. There won't be a theocracy where God is the leader of the nation and Samuel um, gives God's message to the people and they obey. That's, that's about to change in the next chapter. But that's, what, that's the, the event here in chapter 7, is that we have the theocracy God ruling, and through his judge, Samuel, in proper place, in his proper order and proper priority. In verse 17, And his return was to Ramah, for there was his house, and there he judged Israel, and there he built an altar unto the Lord. So we see the priority. God is put first again in Israel, and things are in their proper order and proper place, and the land has peace and justice. And then in chapter 8 now, we see the second event. We see the importance of making family after God our next priority. 
You know, Samuel had God as his first priority, but then, and right up in second, it seems like his job or his ministry of judging Israel seems to have occupied him so much that there's, there's a failure in his family. Let's look at the first part of chapter 8. And it came to pass, when Samuel was old, that he made his sons judges over Israel. Now the name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second, Abiah. And there were judges in Beersheba. And his sons walked not in his ways. So notice, Samuel made his sons judges. He made them judges. But, um, you know, Proverbs 22 tells us, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. But apparently there was some deficiency in their training, or, you know, maybe they just didn't have enough time with their father as they were growing up, and he, he was just very busy, and he was trying to train them well, but uh, they don't turn out like their father. He tries to give them the same occupation, tries to make his job uh, hereditary to his children. Maybe they didn't even want to be judges, or maybe God didn't want them to be. Whatever the case, they didn't turn out to be good judges. They were judges in Beersheba, verse 2 says, and then verse 3 says, And his sons walked not in his ways, but turned aside after lucre, meaning money, and took bribes and perverted judgment. Then all the elders of Israel, so they're not, it doesn't say they're doing all the bad things that Eli's sons did, that God brought terrible judgment on the whole nation for, where Eli's sons were stealing from the sacrifices that were being offered to God. They were um, committing immorality with the women that would come to the temple. But they're taking bribes, and that's wrong, that's corrupt. And because of that, the people... Because of the corrupt leadership of Samuel's sons, the people begin to demand a king and prematurely demand a king. Because in the Pentateuch, you actually have, uh, in the law of Moses, you have some provision for a king. Uh, and David is ultimately going to be the, that king that God is going to anoint, that God is going to choose to be a man after his own heart. And the type of king, although he wasn't perfect, and he certainly didn't follow the law of God the way he should have in a lot of ways, and as you see later in Second Samuel, uh, but their first king, even more so, is 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 going to stray from God's purpose for a king and for a leader in general. And part of it starts with the people of Israel demanding a king when God hadn't yet led, God yet had not provided them a king. He'd not told them it's time to have a king. But they're demanding we want a king now. But it starts with Samuel's failure to train up his sons to um, be the type of judges they should be. Or perhaps to train other people to be judges if his sons weren't qualified. Um, So his sons are taking bribes, and because of that, verse 4, then all the elders of Israel gathered themselves together and came to Samuel and to Ramah, and said unto him, Behold, thou art old. And thy sons walk not in thy ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when, he, when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed unto the Lord. I think Samuel kind of takes this personally. You know, they're saying, You're old, so while you're still alive, because they're, they're, they're not saying that he was a bad leader, but they're saying, Your sons are not good leaders. 
So give us a new leader. Give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prays unto the Lord, which is the right thing to do. So in this second event, we see the importance of making family next to God our greatest priority after God and family. We have God and family and everything else in our lives um, can start to come into proper priority and perspective. But when other things in our lives come between us and our family, or first of all, between us and God, then problems develop. And you see that in, in this second event of Samuel's sons, um, becoming corrupt judges and the Israelites demanding a king prematurely as a result. And then the third event we see here is the importance of setting a proper priority in pleasing God rather than men and thinking spiritually in the way God wants us to think it, following God's instructions rather than following uh, human thinking, human wisdom, and uh, secular leadership. Uh, so look, let's look at uh, verse 7. And the Lord said unto Samuel, Hearken unto the voice of the people and all that they say unto thee. Give them what they want. Um, for they have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me. So God's going to give them what they want, even though he's rejecting, they're rejecting God. So he tells Samuel, don't take it personally. They're rejecting me, not you. They're rejecting God's leadership because God is leading through Samuel. And he's going to give Israel what they want to teach them a lesson because their king that's going to be chosen, they're all going to uh, be excited at first to have that king, but there's going to be some consequences. And they're going to be warned about those consequences. Uh, this is the perfect example of getting what you want and then not wanting what you get uh, in the end because uh, you know, it, it, they're wishing for something uh, prematurely that they shouldn't shouldn't want just yet, that they're not ready for, that God has not set up for them yet, has not provided for them yet. Um, look at verse 9. No, verse 8. According to all the works which they have done since the day I brought them out of Egypt. In other words, this is nothing new. They've been, the people of Israel have been rejecting God's leadership, going all the way back to the wilderness. When Moses led them out of Egypt, they complained against Moses. They complained against Aaron. They always thought they knew better than God and they better than their leaders. And this is happening again as they, they have an alternative. They have their uh, own wisdom that they want to follow and based on what everyone else is doing. Uh, verse 8, Even unto this day, wherewith they have forsaken me and served other gods, so do they also unto thee. Now, therefore, hearken unto their voice, howbeit yet protest solemnly unto them. So God's not going to give them a little bit of chance here. He's going to say, okay, I'm going to give you what you want with all the consequences, but listen to what the consequences are first. I'm going to warn you. If, if, this, if you do this, here's what's going to happen. So here it, here it comes in verse 9. And show them the manner of a king that shall reign over them. And Samuel told all the words of the Lord unto the people that asked him of a king and said, This will be the manner of a king that shall reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for himself. Remember, God should be first and then family. But here, this might not be best for their family to have a king because look what the king's going to do. He will take your sons and appoint them to him for himself. And this is one of the problems with government in general. This is why um, America... Uh, has been so prosperous because we've been able to limit the government 
to where we, we, we made a conscious decision, the founders of America made a conscious decision that we did not want a king. That's why the, the person at the top is called a president. He presides over the government, but he's not a king because we had a bad experience with a king and a parliament of England. And uh, here in general, we see the, the opportunity for a king to abuse his power and to take advantage of the people. And today, as the government gets bigger and stronger and more powerful and more people are dependent on the government, uh, the government, again, has that ability to take advantage of the people and abuse its power over the people. And we see that being the warning of a king and why um, that type of government where the, uh, the government is above the law, the government is able to do whatever it wants and take advantage and do it for its own benefit and, and why that, that's a hazard, why that's a warning and uh, that that's not the way it should be. He will take your sons and appoint them to himself, in verse 11, for his chariots and to be his horsemen, and some shall run before his chariots. And he will appoint him captains over thousands and captains over fifties, and will set them to ear his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his instruments of war and, to, and instruments of his chariots. And he will take your daughters to be confectionaries and to be cooks and to be bakers. And he will take your fields and your vineyards and your olive yards, even the best of them, and give them to his servants. Think of the IRS. <laughs> anyway, uh, verse 15. And he will take the tenth of your seed and your vineyards and give to his officers and to his servants. And he will take your men servants and your maidservants and your goodliest young men and your donkeys and put them to work. And he will take the tenth of your sheep and he shall be his servants. Okay, only a tenth. At least they're only taking a tenth there. I think uh, depending on how much you make, they can take more of a tenth today. But uh, verse 18, And he shall cry out, and ye shall cry out in that day, because your king, which ye shall have chosen you. And today we still get to choose. They, they get to choose here. We, get to, we have election coming up. There's elections have consequences. So be careful. Um, the king, what ye shall have chosen... And the Lord will not hear you in that day. So if we elect the wrong people, and I think there's a principle for us even here today, we elect the wrong people, we have to live with the consequences of that. God said, and the Lord will not hear you in that day. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, nay, but we will have a king over us. That we also, and here, listen to their reason. They're not making proper priorities in the way that they make their decision. Look at the reasoning behind their decision, verse 20. That we also may be like all the nations that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. So they're using humanistic, secular reasoning. You know, what's good for our security, for our military, for our economy? That's what we want. And so they're making their decision based on that, and they're looking at all the other countries that are not living under God uh, and uh, saying, we want to be like them. You know, some of them are pretty well off. That's what we want. We want a strong military. And uh, not that that's a bad thing. They're reasoning for wanting a king, that we may be like all the other nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And Samuel heard all the words of the people, and he rehearsed them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Hearken unto their voice, and make them a king. And Samuel said unto the men of Israel, Go every man unto his city. 
And so next week, uh, Lord willing, I plan to come back to chapter 9 and, and, and see uh, Saul being chosen as king. So in these pa- two passages here, these two chapters, uh, 7 and 8 of 1 Samuel, we see three events that demonstrate the importance of setting and maintaining proper priorities in our lives. Now first, we saw the importance of making God our top priority and just the blessings that God brings to Israel and to us today when we put God first and all the trouble that they had before that when they had other idols, when they had gods coming between them and God or in addition to God crowding uh, their worship, crowding what was most important to them, what their priorities were. And when they got those out of their lives, God was able to work and, le- and provide them good leadership in the, with, through Samuel and provide for protection from their enemies and deliverance from that. So that's uh, the first priority and first event in chapter 7. And in chapter 8, we saw the second event, Samuel's failure uh, with his sons as an evidence of the importance of having family as a priority. A family as a priority. Right after God. And then in, in the third event, we see the importance of setting our priority upon pleasing God and following God's instructions rather than what man thinks. You know, looking at the nations around and saying, I want to be like everyone else. And we want to, you know, have this strong secular leader like the other countries around us. So the importance of pleasing God in our decisions rather than man, rather than thinking humanistically in man's wisdom and what everyone else thinks. Uh, Let's strive to please God. So the next time you find yourself um, busy in life or or, or if there's a a time that seems, things that seem frustrating because there's not enough time, not enough money or or something, uh, some, some resource, um, let's make sure, let's, let's reevaluate our lives and make sure that God is first, and then family, and then everything else that should fall into place after that. You know, you put God, family, church, you know, maybe, um, and I, I won't go further on that, but uh, God and family first, especially, as we see in this passage. And uh, again, there's a, there's a lot that's not there, so, so it's kind of a little bit of speculation. I mean, you can say that maybe God's not holding Samuel responsible, or maybe it's just not here, or it's not rising to the same level as Eli's son's sin did. Uh, and we saw in that passage that specifically Eli talked with them, but that's all he did. And, and there was a, a lot of consequences that they should have had to suffer. And maybe this is the first time it's coming to light in the beginning of this chapter. Maybe this is the first time that Samuel's hearing of it when they come to him. We don't know. There's a lot that we don't know right here. Um, so we can only speculate. But all we have to go off of is there was, you know, you see he's very busy in verses 15 through 17 of chapter 7. And you, you, could, you could assume maybe perhaps that maybe that has something to do with it, is that uh, he'd be so busy with the ministry and traveling in that circuit that where's his sons and all this, and uh, what what happened there, and, and that's just a common common thing that happens. You know, it's almost cliche, or preachers preachers kids. Uh, so watch out for that. But uh, 
preacher's kids. So sometimes they're the worst ones in the youth group, I guess. Uh, you know, it's kind of almost a cliche because a lot of times the uh, pastor gets so busy that they, his children don't have enough time with him. And they don't, so they don't see enough and learn enough from him and from his character. Because that, that's, that's a key word in verse, um, verse 5. When the, the complaint is, Behold, thou art old, and thy sons walk not in thy ways. So somewhere there, there was a disconnect. There, his character did not transfer to his sons. And now everybody has their own choice. And it's not always the parent's fault when, when, when a son uh, doesn't live up to. And, and, and who knows, we don't have the rest of the story. When, when they got older, if they, if they reformed their ways, you know, if they were rebuked and removed from being judges completely and got their lives straightened out, we don't know that. We know that in the case of Solomon, you know, uh, of course, David was not a perfect example himself. And, you know, always whatever, uh, I know one of the principles Bill Gothard used to say was, what the father allows, to some extent, the children will, will pursue in excess. You know, so any little mistake that the parent makes, you know, the children tend to uh, further live that out. And you see that a little bit with Solomon. But at the same time, you know, you have all the Psalms of David, and you know that his heart most of the time was in the right place. Just from the Psalms, you see that. And it talks about him as being a man after God's own heart. And in Proverbs 22, it says, uh, again, when he is old, he will not depart from it. So when, Samuel, when uh, Solomon got older, uh, he did turn back to God. And he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes in that, at that point in his life. And he talked about how he wasted so much of his life and how so much of his life was vanity. Because he spent it pursuing you know, um, riches and, and the wife, his wives and... Uh, peace treaties and you know prestige all that and he did some good things he built a temple you know he was a, the wisest man ever lived um, but had those some some failures in his life but at the end of his life you know turned back to God so we don't know about the rest of the story here with Samuel and his sons but what we do have is what's here and uh, that's what we have to go with